Well, Johnny Erickson Tata's statement that she made during her remarks at last weekend, she said that God uses the evil he hates to bring about the good that he loves. And that's what we see and have seen throughout this study of the life of Joseph. Steve Estes was the friend who came to Joni, or Johnny back in, uh, just after, in those dark days just after her accident as she was recovering from at home. She said she wanted to kill herself, but she couldn't do it because she couldn't move. Steve Estes, a student at Westminster in Escondido, came to her, and I believe he shared, in answering her questions, he shared events from the life of Joseph. As she asked why, Joseph too must have asked why. Instead of diving into shallow water while swimming with friends, Joseph was thrown in a waterless pit by his murderous brothers. Instead of being confined to a wheelchair, Joseph was confined in an Egyptian dungeon for over two years. Joseph asked why. Johnny asked why. And the answer they both received was, for my glory. That's God's answer, for my glory. And that answer was sufficient for them because God put Joseph where he did to save countless lives. And God put Johnny where he did so that through her ministry, he could save countless lives by her preaching the gospel. You see, God places his children exactly where he does for his purposes. Sometimes we don't know what they are, but we know that they're always good, and we know that he has always promised to be with us in those circumstances. This morning, Genesis 46 and 47 is our focus. And I've titled this message, The Infinite Shadow of the Cross. And the one big idea I want to bring out and is on the top of your handout as we normally do is this. Standing at the center of history, the cross of Jesus Christ casts its shadow of promise from eternity to eternity. Now, it's odd that the cruelest form of execution which, of which humans could conceive would become the symbol of the greatest gift that God could give, that he could conceive. And in his infinite mercy, God the Son entered our world by taking on human flesh to fulfill all that God required of us. Then he gave his life, shedding his blood on the cross in our place to pay for our sin. In his perfect obedience is credited to us by God's gift of faith, and that enables every believer to be adopted into God's family forever. As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, in one sense, while we walk on this earth, we are yet seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, shadows are a, uh, in Scripture, sometimes describe death. 
but they also describe God's protection. Psalm 36, 7 says this, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 63, 7, In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. What I want to show you is how the cross uh, that stood on Golgotha in 30 AD that absorbed the blood of Jesus casts its shadow from eternity past to eternity, eternity future to declare to us God's infinite goodness. And I believe it's the shadow of that cross that enables Johnny Erickson Tata to say, God allows the evil he hates to bring about the good he loves. And our passage this morning will show us the shadow of the cross in the Old Testament that would become the stark reality of the cross for Jesus. He died there but has risen and is at the right hand of the Father, making sure his cross continues to cast its shadow over God's people to give them hope and rest until he returns in glory. So I invite you to open your Bible at Genesis 46. We're going to look at this passage, a rather long passage, but like many of Joseph's stories, uh, need to hold together. Look at this passage in three angles. First, how God gathers his people. Second, how God gives to his people. And finally, how God grows his people. Now, we honor God when we stand when his word is read. So if you're able, please stand. I'm going to read from our text beginning in the last verse of chapter 45 and then the opening verses of chapter 46. Genesis 45, 28. And Israel, that's Jacob, said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Verse 5, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took also their livestock and their goods, which they had, they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons of sons with him, his daughters, and his son's daughters, all of the offspring he brought with him into Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Please be seated. Let's begin with how God gathers all his people. Now Israel, or, or Jacob, on hearing that his son Joseph is alive in Egypt, it lifts his heart from years of depression. Hearing that Joseph controls a great bounty of food brings relief to Jacob, but 
but also fear. Fear because he knows the story of how his grandfather Abraham once went down to Egypt in a, in a, in a time of a, a famine and almost came to a complete disaster until God dragged him back out. And then later, during Jacob's own lifetime, in another famine, his father Isaac was tempted to go down to Europe. But in Genesis 26, we read this. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. So even though Jacob knows God has somehow put his son Joseph in charge of the only food available throughout the ancient Near East, he's afraid to go to Egypt. But God, in his graciousness, he appears to to Jacob, and he says, I will be with you in Egypt. Now, this is the third year of the famine And the great nation that God has promised to Abraham that his Jacob's father Isaac held on to and that we've seen the the offspring of, of Jacob now fighting over for almost a whole generation, this great promise to make Abraham into a great nation simply doesn't seem to be materializing. They're not a great nation. And in fact, because of this famine, They may not even continue to be a nation. But God plans to advance his promise in Egypt. So to Egypt, Jacob must go. In verses 8 through 27 of chapter 46, we see a long list of people. And when we look closely at this people, I'm not going to read it, Um, But when we look closely at this list of people, we find something very important. The number seven has a special significance in the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh day. The Passover celebration was seven days long. In the promised land, God commanded a jubilee year of rest for the land after seven weeks of seven years, or seven times seven Forty-nine, and on the 50th year then would be the Jubilee. In the book of Revelation, it uses seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls to indicate the totality of judgment. And here in our text, the famine revealed through Pharaoh's dream would be seven years long to show the totality of this famine that had spread through all the civilized ancient Near East. So throughout the Bible, this number seven is used to represent completeness or wholeness. Well, the number seven features prominently in this genealogical list here in chapter 46. And it's there to show us that God is gathering all of his people. Verse 15 tells us that Leah has 33 children, and her maid Zilpha has 16 for a total of 49. That's seven times seven. Jacob's seventh son is Gad. He's listed in verse 16. The Hebrew characters of of his name, G and D, have numerical values in Hebrew. So G is three and D is four. So the number of Gad's name is seven. Gad is... Jacob's seventh son. 
Gad has seven sons. Verse 22 lists Rachel's 14 children, two times seven. Her total includes her maid Bilhah's seven children listed in verses 23 and 24. So the total number of people who leave for Egypt are 66. But when we add Jacob and Joseph's two sons born to him in Egypt, when you add them into the mix, as verse 27 says, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to, into Egypt were 70. Seven times 10. So let's capture the significance of seven in our first fill-in. Everyone God calls will be present in the countless multitude he gathers to enjoy his glory forever. This example of how God gathered all of his children was a great comfort and a great hope for the original hearers, Israel, as they would soon face trials and slavery in Egypt, then face trials as God led them through the wilderness, then face trials as they entered the promised land during the time of the judges faced many trials then in payment or in result of their idolatry faced the trials of exile in Babylon for 70 years and then returned to their ruined homes in Jerusalem with a tremendous rebuilding uh, uh, program before them. This text gave hope that God would continue to always gather all his children and bring them together regardless of how we sometimes think that we're separated. And we too find hope and comfort from this passage in that same way when we face trials. We'll come back to this idea of 70 in a few minutes, but for now, let's just note that completion is what is intended in these verses with this genealogy. So let's move to a second point then, how God gives to his people. Now, with the 70 safely in Egypt, verse 31 in chapter 36 and following, they describe Joseph's negotiation for a place to live for his family in Egypt. As the shepherds entering the land, they didn't expect a welcome with open arms because the Egyptians were farmers. Sheep eat what farmers hope to grow. The Israelites, Jacob's family, are shepherds. So these two people groups have never truly mixed. Although they didn't expect a warm welcome, what they did want was good land where they could flourish. Now, Joseph doesn't attempt to spin this situation, and he anticipates Pharaoh's first question when he brings his family to meet him, and he coaches his brothers. Look at verse 34. He says that when Pharaoh asks their occupation, they are to say this, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. And then Joseph tells them why they should say that. 
in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptian. Then chapter 47 begins by Joseph taking five of his brothers to meet Pharaoh. And in verse 3, we see that as predicted, Pharaoh asks, what do you guys do for a living? The brothers answer as instructed, we are shepherds as were our fathers, and the famine has wiped out all of the grazing land in our home. We have come to ask to live in the land of Goshen so our animals won't interfere with your farmers. Now, Goshen is in the northeast corner of Egypt, and it's close enough to the Nile Delta. That's what makes that farmland so rich. It's close enough to the Nile Delta to have good soil, but it's removed far enough to not be the main farming area. So in considering this request, Pharaoh replies by saying this in verse 6. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. This is beyond an open arms welcome by Pharaoh. Not only were they to live where their flocks could flourish, but Pharaoh also gave them authority over his livestock. They were to be the royal veterinarians. And as shepherds, they loved their animals. So here, Pharaoh is giving them exactly what they desire. They desire to be together as a family. They desire to have the provision of the land so that they can feed their flocks and feed themselves. They desire to be in a land of peace. And Pharaoh gives that to him. Why would he do this? Proverbs 21.1 tells us, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Pharaoh's heart was clearly turned by God to give them this great privilege of living in the land, of flourishing in the land, of being together in the land, of living by peace in the land, a place where they could grow and find meaningful work fitted for their skills. So here comes our second fill-in. God gives his people gifts that satisfy the true desires of their hearts. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 37, 4. And it became a favorite at a time in my life when I, I longed for a gift that was not a thing, but a blessing. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give makes this a promise, not a possibility. God graciously answered my prayers and my hope by giving me something that is truly delightful and that I hope to enjoy for the rest of my life. 
And that made Psalm 37.4 a verse for me. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, Jesus speaks of our anxiety in Matthew 6. He speaks about our anxiety over things. And he teaches us to first examine ourselves for what we truly desire. Because oftentimes what we see is not actually what we really desire. Jesus says that we are to worry about things, but then he says this, our heavenly father knows what you need. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When we have new life by the rebirth of the spirit bringing our hearts alive, our desires then begin to conform to what God desires. He desires compassion and mercy and generosity and love for others. And we desire those things too. Yes, we need the things that we need to have to, 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 to live in this world, but he promises to give us those things in abundance when we delight ourselves in him and when our desires are expressed in the things that he desires, mercy and compassion and love for others, service for his church, telling others about Christ. Joseph understood this, and now his brothers are seeing it as well. He coaches them. They come before Pharaoh asking for the desires of their heart. Pharaoh gives it to him. Joseph has clung to God through, through these years of, of captivity in, in Egypt. And now his brothers are beginning to see it as well, that when we delight ourselves in the giver, he gives us the good gifts. So God has gathered all his people. He's given them not only what they need, but what they love. But let's look now at how he grows his people to advance his redemptive promise. Now, what happens in chapter 47, verse 12 and following presents a particular challenge to us because we need to recognize God's common grace and God's special grace. God's common grace is his provision of the things that are necessary for all life in this world. The rain and the sun come down on the just and the unjust, Isaiah says. His common grace is also uh, the restraining of evil and compels the good in this fallen world that is in turmoil because of Adam's sin first and all our sin that has followed. That's God's common grace, but his special grace. His special grace is his unmerited favor to redeem some of fallen humanity and ultimately renew the fallen creation by the work of Christ through the power of the Spirit. That's a special grace. And before God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, all people lived under God's common grace. And that's what makes the Abrahamic promise so important to know because it's the first of God's special grace promises. Hidden within the Abrahamic promise 
is the successive promises yet to be revealed that will culminate in the new covenant promises of Jesus Christ. They're all hidden in here. They're progressively revealed, and they reach their fulfillment in Christ and the new covenant. So God's special grace begins with Abraham, and it reaches its climax at the cross, and then it continues until its completion in a renewed humanity, living with God forever in a renewed heavens and earth. And until that day, God's common grace and his special grace continue alongside one another, and that's what we see in Genesis 47, beginning in verse 12. Follow along as I read. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all of the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph, I'm sorry, 47 verse 12 and following. And Joseph gathered up all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. It's the third year of the famine and things are bleak. Joseph begins to sell food to those who come from around the Nile, as he's been doing. But notice that he gives his family all the food they need for free. In verse 15, the people, because of the famine around the Near East, in the fifth year, by the fifth year, Everyone's money is gone. And then in verse 15, they appeal to Joseph, and he begins to take their livestock in exchange for food. And then when he has brought all of their livestock for Pharaoh, in year seven, they come to Joseph, and they say this, our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes? Buy us and our land for food, and we, will, and, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. After seven years of famine, Pharaoh owns everything, including the people. Verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow in the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should receive a fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So it's the end of the seventh year, and the famine is over, just as Pharaoh's dream had revealed, and the Egyptians are thankful for preserving their lives by this, this great idea of storing all this food that Joseph 
had come up with. And now they're willing to serve Pharaoh so that Joseph establishes a permanent 20% tax on the economy. And they're grateful to be able to pay it because they have their lives. And now he gives them seed so they can plant. They know this famine is over. It's been prophesied that it's seven years. Into eight years, they're going to plant and they're going to harvest. And what they harvest, 20% belongs to Pharaoh. Except for the land of the priests. Now, the priests were given tax-free land in Egypt. And that is outside of the, of, of the bounty that Pharaoh has been collecting from the populace here during this famine. So God's common grace has allowed them to continue to live. And his common grace continues as he graciously leaves the priests intact so they could continue to lead their people Egypt as they worship the gods that they had, the sun god, Ra, and the god of the Nile called Hopi. But common grace is not special grace. God's special grace is reserved for his chosen people. And in verse 27, we see special grace just shine right off the page. It says, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Jacob will live for 17 more years in Goshen. And he will see God's special grace as his offspring are multiplied to become that great nation God promised. And as God promised him at the beginning of his ordeal going down to Egypt, Joseph will close his father's eyes when he dies. And Joseph will take him back to the promised land to be buried in the cave that Abraham bought at Machpelah and be buried next to his grandparents, his parents, and his beloved wife, Leah. But let's conclude by returning to this biblical use of seven. Genesis 10 contains a list called the Table of Nations, sons of Noah. And from these 70, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. In Genesis 12, God promised that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And the Hebrew word translated families means kind or kindred or tribes or people groups, all the families. In Genesis 46, we have seen that God gathered the 70 descendants of Abraham through Jacob. He brought them to Egypt. When Joseph met his father, they embraced and they wept together. And looking at his son, Jacob said this in verse 30 of chapter 26. Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. These are the first recorded words of Jacob that do not mention death or Sheol ever since chapter 37 when Joseph was kidnapped and disappeared. Now, his words are called the nuc dimittis. That's Latin for now I can depart. And they're repeated centuries later by Simeon, 
the devout man whom God had promised would see his Messiah before he died. And when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple on the eighth day, Simeon took the baby in his arms and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jacob and Simeon both recognized God's anointed Savior. Joseph was a shadow. Jesus was the reality. So their thankfulness to God expressed in the similar words, now I can depart for I have seen your face in salvation, reveal that Jacob and Simeon found rest in the shadow of the cross. Now I can depart. Now I can die because I have seen your promised rest. They found rest in the shadow of the cross, not yet standing physically, but revealed to them through the Spirit. Now let's go forward in time. Revelation 5, verse 24, the elders gathered around before the Lamb who was slain, who is now risen, Jesus. They sing a new song, singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. All the families of the earth, as promised to Abraham. All of God's chosen, as gathered by him to bring them down to Egypt, where they would continue to be nourished and grow. The words in every tribe and language and people and nation. This is a repeat of God's promised blessing to Abraham. And in this, we see the shadow of the cross that's cast forward to the end of time and the beginning of eternity. Now let's go and add Paul's inspired statement in Romans 8.29 to see the shadow cast back before the beginning of time in eternity past. Paul writes this, For those whom... God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8.29. Now the Greek word here, translated as foreknew, means to choose or select in advance of some other event. To choose or select in advance of some other event. So it can't mean God looked down through the halls of time to see what you would do when presented with the gospel. It can't mean that for two reasons. First, the Greek word doesn't mean that. And second, if God looked down through the halls of time to learn something, God would have learned, and that is heresy. So before time began, the cross cast its shadow into eternity past. In history, it casts a shadow on all the Old Testament saints, and they found rest, as the writer of Hebrews 11 says, looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then the cross casts its shadow forward from Golgotha all the way to the end, where we sing to the Lamb the new song, along with the countless others of the people he's redeemed, a people of God for from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom of priests 
to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's how God was conforming us to the image of his son so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, countless multitudes that God will gather. The cross cast its shadow forward from Golgotha all the way to the end. It cast it back even before time began. So that brings us to a final fill-in. Special grace resides in the shadow of the cross where all God's people find rest until Christ returns. Unless Christ returns first, we will all die. Unless Christ returns first, we will all have trials and disappointment and suffer loss. Unless Christ returns first, we will all lose someone we love dearly. We will all receive that last diagnosis or we will stare into some tragic life-changing event. Only in the shadow of the cross can we find comfort and rest and hope. We learned in Sunday school this morning that the Apostle Paul writes that this momentary affliction has no weight whatsoever in comparison to the glory of an eternity with our God. Our hope in the shadow of the cross is as sure as the resurrection and the kind of rest that has enabled God's people to face prison and persecution and death throughout history. God's promise to conform us to the image of, of, of his son makes him that firstborn among the multitude of brothers and sisters. And what we learn here in Genesis 46 and 47 is that everyone God calls will be present in that countless multitude he will gather to enjoy his glory forever. That is man's chief end, to know God and enjoy him forever. I've often wondered how I would react if I found myself in a situation like Johnny Erickson Tata. You ever wondered that? You know, none of us can really say, but one thing I know is that the spark of pure joy of living for Christ that I saw in her eyes and came out in her marvelous singing can only come by finding rest in the shadow of the cross. It was a joy to sing with her, but how much more joyous will it be to sing that new song of the Lamb with her and all of you in the when the shadow of the cross is no longer needed? Because then the promised seventh-day Sabbath rest with God will be here and will never end. Isn't that glorious? Let's pray.